St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. It feels right, whereas with my body before starting hormones or having my top surgery, I felt completely disconnected Just from like it. we use other things, blood pressure medication, birth control pills. Hunter may evolve with scientific literature over time. The same has been true for gender-affirming care. I'm trying to scream into the sun to make other people feel that urgency. Many of them are asking now, you know, why, first of all, why are they being targeted? Tomorrow, the future of gender-affirming care could change in Missouri. That's because of a new emergency rule which is set to go into effect April 27th. The rule, issued by Missouri's Attorney General Andrew Bailey, would make Missouri the first in the country to restrict gender-affirming care for adults. Those restrictions are being challenged in court, but the rules have already interrupted medical care for trans people. Some trans people are considering whether to leave the state. To understand what these rules mean for trans people in Missouri and why health providers and patients are raising alarm, we go to St. Louis on the Air producer, Danny Wisentowski. Across Missouri, trans people are counting down the days until April 27th. That's because earlier this month, Missouri's Attorney General Andrew Bailey released details of an emergency rule that would severely limit the ability of transgender patients to obtain gender-affirming care. Those rules demand that patients receive at least 15 hours of mental health care, exhibit three years of medically documented gender dysphoria, among other requirements. And today, we're going to talk about how trans people in Missouri are reacting to that impending April 27th deadline, which will alter the way that gender-affirming care is given in this state. And here to talk with us about that are two trans people who are grappling with the sudden changes and requirements that have thrust their lives into uncertainty. And joining us in studio is Axel Pollock. He's a 24-year-old college student from Edwardsville, Illinois. Axel, thank you for being here. Hey. And also with us on the line is A.J. Hackworth. He's 34 and lives in Springfield, Missouri. A.J., welcome to the show. And thank you for having me. Axel, I wanted to start with you. Give us a little bit of a background about your experience with gender-affirming care and what this moment feels like for you. I started just September 30th last year on being able to get my HRT. And at this point, I'm terrified. Tell us a bit about the process that it took for you just to get on testosterone and to reach that point. Um, For me, I had to struggle to find a primary care doctor that would send me a referral to a clinic that would basically be willing to help me out. And that clinic, although you're living in Illinois, that clinic is is the one in Washington University, the gender clinic. Yes, sir. How has that been for you? The people there are really nice. They're awesome. Um, The doctor I originally had left the practice um, around Christmas, so I'm I was supposed to meet my new doctor next month, and 
with everything going on, they're not sure what's going to happen. Now, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the restrictions that are in this proposed rule, and some of those involve, you know, three years of, of gender dysphoria, these additional mental health treatments. Do you know if you're going to have to abide by those new restrictions after the 27th? What has the clinic been telling you? Uh, the clinic is telling me that at the moment they don't know how this is going to affect their program and what they do. They said that I still have my appointment scheduled, but it might be best to prepare to get a new doctor in Illinois. AJ, I want to ask you, you've been on testosterone for a bit longer, for more than six years, but you recently received some messages from your provider at Cox Health, and I'm looking at that email that you had posted, and they talk about you know, basically telling you that they're not sure if they can fill your prescriptions for gender-affirming hormone therapy. You got this email on April 14th, a day after Andrew Bailey announced these rules. What was it like to receive that email, and, and what happened after that? Honestly, it was very scary to receive the email. I had, as soon as I found out about the ruling, I contacted my PCP via the patient portal and just immediately sent her an email, hey, what do I need to do to prepare for this? And the very next morning, I woke up to this email that said, we're not going to be able to provide you any gender-affirming care. And it's just derailed my entire week, honestly. And AJ, you, you received another email later on, which, which I think speaks to kind of this confusion that providers aren't really sure. You gotten this other message that said, okay, they, they can continue providing um, the gender-affirming care as long as they're compliant with the Attorney General's emergency rule. What does that mean for you? That's right. It's actually quite confusing because the language between the two emails is quite similar. The only difference to me is that the provider is saying that she will do everything she can to continue care um, and that she is there for us. But it doesn't feel like anything is really changing. I don't know what to anticipate. I don't know what kind of paperwork she's going to require. Um, I just, there's just so much up in the air. I don't know what my future looks like. Do you have a sense if you would have to you know, reprove that you have gender dysphoria or, or go back to additional therapy to reach those benchmarks uh, laid out in the attorney general's rules? I mean, it's a possibility. And that's nerve wracking because it takes a lot of time, especially around Springfield and the Missouri Ozarks to establish any kind of care anywhere you go. So if I have to change providers, I have to find a new therapist, I have to find a new psychiatrist, whatever these requirements are that I need to meet, it's going to take time. And I'm afraid that there may be a lapse in my care just to try to meet these requirements. So AJ, what does that, that mean for you, you know, to face a prospect potentially of not having your gender affirming care and having to detransition, even for a temporary amount of time. Honestly, that is something that has been weighing very heavily on me, along with everything else. But that's kind of been the biggest uh, and most scary factor of it all. You know, I have been on hormones for almost seven years now, and forced street detransition would mean a backstep in everything that has helped me feel good about myself and feel affirmed in my gender. Um, there will be health effects that 
are the opposite of the things that I've already done. For example, I've already had my top surgery and it may mean, you know, the detransitioning may grow new breast tissue. Um, I may have to start my period again. Um, you know, the body will just go by the estrogen because it won't have that testosterone anymore. And that is absolutely terrifying. Axel, does that resonate with you? The physical aspects do definitely. I'm more scared for myself about the mental health aspect. With my gender dysphoria, it used to cause me a lot of depressive issues. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's one thing that terrifies both me and my partner is if I have to stop taking my tes- testosterone, it me and him are both scared that my mental health is going to plummet really bad and I'm going to wind up in a constant depressive state uh, worrying about being suicidal all the time because I can't live with who I was. And I want to talk about that that point you've just brought up, um, Axel, the, uh, on the mental health issue because we were talking about the attorney general's rules. They apply to you know proof or gender dysphoria, therapy, things that were happening you know in your doctor's appointments. But there's this other section, and it gets into a much more confusing area. And what that section actually discusses is that it says, "quote Mental health comorbidities they must be treated." and resolved before you can get gender-affirming care. And that issue has caused a lot of confusion. Axel, could you talk a bit about the notion of that you should resolve your mental health conditions before getting gender-affirming care? What is the disconnect there for your life? For my life, it's there are a lot of mental health conditions that cannot be resolved. They are life ki- lifetime conditions, autism, PTSD, depression even, you can go months to years without having a depressive episode, but it can always come back. Those are things that cannot be resolved. Basically, another word that I've heard for resolved that people have used is cured. These things cannot be cured. They are a part of people. They are a part of who people are. AJ, what about about for you? You're also confronting this this confusion and this question of these requirements to resolve any comorbidities of, of mental health. What does that mean for you? That's really hits home for me personally because I do have mental health concerns that I have been getting treatment for. I have bipolar disorder um, and uh, for anxiety disorders. Uh, I do see a psychiatrist and I see a therapist. I've seen the both of them less than a year, um, but I've had ongoing therapy, like off and on rather, uh, through several years for specifically these mental health concerns. But like Axel says, it's not something that's going to be resolved. It's these mental health challenges are to be managed. Now, this... This brings me to something that Attorney General Andrew Bailey said today in an interview with uh, our own St. Louis Public Radio reporter, Jason Rosenbaum. And I'm going to read a couple of, of the things that Attorney General Bailey said. And he was asked very specifically about the points about mental health and you know, what if someone has something like ADHD, which is managed by medication but cannot be resolved. Um, and so when questioned about autism, you know, why, why should people be screened for that as a condition of getting gender-affirming care? And he said, quote, because of the disproportionate number of instances where we're using excuses to administer puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. L- let me ask you about this word he's using, that autism is being used as some kind of excuse 
to transition. Does that make any sense to you? No. AJ, how about you? I'm shocked. I haven't heard this yet. This is the first time that I'm hearing about uh, the AG's statement on this. I'm. That's appalling, honestly. <laughs> it is so off base. The excuses. So gender dysphoria causes depression. It causes anxiety. And those things can be resolved through transition. Like medically, that is the treatment for gender dysphoria. But separately are these mental health diagnoses that have nothing to do with gender dysphoria. We're talking today about how trans people are preparing for unprecedented restrictions on gender-affirming care in Missouri. The new rules are set to go into effect tomorrow on April 27th, and joining our discussion is Axel Pollock, a 24-year-old college student in Edwardsville, Illinois, and A.J. Hackworth, who is 34 and lives in Springfield, Missouri. In Attorney General Bailey's statements, you know, when he's been describing, you know, his rules, he references a lot of terms like experimental or that patients should understand what they're getting into. But it, it seems to miss the point that the impact of gender-affirming care on your lives and these changes, could you both just tell tell me a bit about the changes on your lives now that you've been able to live as, as yourselves to have this care? Has it improved your lives? Definitely. For me, um... People, I feel like I'm not pretending to be someone who I'm not, like I'm constant. I'm not constantly wearing a mask anymore. I feel free, honestly. AJ? Oh, no doubt. I feel more like myself than I ever have been. I can look in the mirror, and it's so cliche, but I can look in the mirror and see myself now. Um, I can hear myself. I can feel myself in my body and it feels right. Whereas with my body before starting hormones or having my top surgery, I felt completely disconnected from it. It wasn't me. And so it, not only is it a relief in my body, but it's a relief socially too. Um, being perceived as the person that I am and who I always have been. I, when I was younger, I moved around a lot and I had uh, asked my classmates to call me a boy, um, but they never did. Uh, so now people see me and they say, hey man, nice to meet you, sir. You know, that guy over there, it's, it makes a big difference. Axel, a few days ago, you participated in a protest in downtown St. Louis. There were a few hundred people there. They carried signs. There were a lot of, of trans, um, non-binary people. What did that feel like being in that crowd where there were a lot of those same emotions, a lot of, a lot of anger, a lot of concern, and a lot of why? Um, I, it felt like I wasn't alone. Um, we had a lot of people that day go and talk to the through the microphone on the sound thing they had set up, and it reminded me that I am not alone in this battle. That there are so many people who, even just allies who were there, or people driving by honking for in support of us. I'm that I'm not alone. None of us are alone. We all have each other. 
AJ, uh, you had told me that you've actually been helping some folks, you know, who are in rural Missouri either either come to Springfield or get care. Tell us about what what that's like and helping people to get that gender affirming care in such a tense moment. Uh, that's right. I have a friend uh, who has been saving up to get uh, gender affirming care and wasn't planning on starting until September, but they've known that they were going to transition for years. Um, this just happened to expedite the process. They wanted to be more financially stable, but they had to do it while they still could. So I arranged to meet them here in uh, Springfield uh, at Planned Parenthood, and I actually went with them yesterday. And I'm so, so honored to have been able to be there and to hold his hand and uh, while he got his blood work. So being in contact with other uh, trans people in the rural areas of Missouri has meant a lot to me, but it's also like really scary because I know that they're even more alone than I am. So I try to make myself public and visible and uh, reach out to these people to make sure that they have the resources that they have because otherwise they, they don't have anything. You know, I wanted to ask both of you, you know, th this moment, there's a lot of waiting, waiting to see if there'll be a lawsuit filed, will this be halted, and, and to get only, you know, two weeks notice, essentially, that your entire world's could change in the way that you relate to your medical providers. Is there a level of urgency in the public? Do, do you think people understand how critical things are right now for your community? I think up here in St. Louis, definitely, uh, given the pro two protests we had this past weekend, Definitely people are seeing the urgency. Um, I've got people that I know who are in New York, Tennessee, and Florida even, who have been reaching out to me making sure like things are doing okay up here. I'm doing okay. I'm getting stuff figured out that I need to get figured out. AJ, how about you? Is there, or, or do you see a level of urgency or, or the reflection uh, of what is really a crisis in the trans community uh, facing this April 27th deadline? Overall, uh, throughout Springfield and the Ozarks, no. Um, it feels like nobody knows. Uh, it feels like nobody cares. Um, I mean, you can't care if you don't know, but the only folks who have any sense of urgency about this, in my experience, are the providers and the trans people. Even my cisgender friends aren't about it. And I know that there are a lot of other things going on in the country right now. You know, we're all very scared, but this feels like a step toward, this may sound extreme, but it feels like a step toward eradication of transgender people. And I'm trying to scream into the sun to make other people feel that urgency. And it, honestly around here feels pretty uh like it's falling on deaf ears you know i guess just finally if both of you had a message for trans people listening to this or maybe some people who are listening to this who are just learning about this for the first time you know what what do you want them to know about what this is like and the future that you're facing axel don't give up keep fighting we have each other so for allies, we need you to step up. 
we need you to talk. We need you to talk to the people in your lives who don't know about it. We need you to talk to the people in your lives who have a preconceived notion of queer and trans people and tell them what it's, tell them who we really are. And to my trans siblings, it is going to be okay. It's really scary right now. And I'm right there with you and I am angry, but time is going to go by and we have folks fighting for us and we are going to be okay. AJ Hackworth is 34 and lives in Springfield, Missouri. AJ, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you again for having me. And Axel Pollock is a 24-year-old college student living in Edwardsville, Illinois. Axel, thank you so much for being in studio with us today. Thank you for having me. That was St. Louis on the Air producer Danny Wisentowski speaking with two trans people about this perilous moment for gender-affirming care in Missouri. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about Missouri's unprecedented ban on gender-affirming care, and we'll learn what it's like for doctors trying to navigate the new rules while still serving their patients. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. I'm Elaine Cha. When Andrew Bailey, Missouri's Attorney General, announced new rules to restrict gender-affirming care, the news shocked trans patients. No other state has considered banning this kind of health care for adults, and it's had many patients scrambling to figure out what they can do to prepare. Those patients turned to their doctors, but many providers themselves are just as lost amidst these circumstances. To understand why that is, let's go back to St. Louis on the Air producer, Danny Wisentowski, who sat down with Dr. Colleen McNicholas, Chief Medical Officer for Planned Parenthood in the St. Louis region and Southwest Missouri. Dr. McNicholas, these rules were announced earlier this month, and you know, in general, they create these new restrictions both on patients and providers. Patients now have to demonstrate three years of documented gender dysphoria. They need 15 hours of therapy over an 18-month period. When these rules were released, what first stood out to you? You know, we are seeing here in the fallout of the announcement that um, there are providers and certainly patients who are confused, um, who are worried, um, who are now scrambling to figure out how are they going to continue this basic life-saving care. And we're going to talk about some of the more details of these rules and some of that confusion. I do want to ask, zoom us out a little bit. What does gender-affirming care look like now, before these rules have gone into effect? Describe kind of what Planned Parenthood provides, where it does, and, and what standards and restrictions patients have to go through already in this moment. It really is a discussion with patients, uh, making sure they understand the care, the risks of the care, and the benefits of the care. We provide this care to folks who are 16 years and older. Um, and, and the truth is that the way in which we provide that care right now is the way that it should be provided. Um, 
patient-centered and consistent with the best medical evidence. Dr. McNicholas, in Attorney General Andrew Bailey's rules, he repeatedly refers to this kind of care as experimental and implies and accuses, essentially, that this care is being given without a lot of thought being put into it, without having the patients prove that they need it. What do you say to that description? Well, look, first and foremost, trans folks have existed throughout the entirety of this world's existence. Um, And folks have been using hormones to live their best authentic and affirmed lives. It is also incredibly important to recognize there's a difference between off-label use of medication and unapproved use of medication. All of the medications that we use in gender-affirming care are approved medications. And just like we use other things, blood pressure medication, birth control pills, as just as we use those medications for indications that are different or may evolve with scientific literature over time, the same has been true for gender-affirming care. So bottom line is more than a dozen professional medical organizations support gender-affirming care. The data is clear. It is safe, and it is actually life-saving for most of these folks. Now, I want to talk about one piece of these proposed rules that requires the uh, you know, years of gender dysphoria documentation, therapy. These things can be burdensome and difficult if you don't have great access to medical care already. But one piece really stands out, and it's about mental health comorbidities. Talk to us about that piece of the rule. It says those comorbidities must be, quote, treated and resolved before gender-affirming care can start. What does that tell you? Well, what it tells me is that once again, we have politicians trying to practice medicine, and the consequences of that is physicians, <laughs> practitioners out in the world don't understand what the rule means. You know, for me, when I think about and I meet a patient where they are, we assess their medical comorbidities, and sometimes that does include mental health comorbidities. The goal is to understand are they getting treatment and are they medically optimized? It's not that the mental health condition or any other condition magically goes away. It is really that we, as a, as a heal, in a healing relationship, understand that there are certain conditions and that we are addressing and treating those. And that's how we're going to approach this. We are going to say, you know, look, uh, in common medical practice, my expectation would be that we mutually understand what is impacting your health and we are addressing each of those components. Dr. McNicholas, let's talk a bit about what these rules mean for patients. There are patients who are already on hormones, testosterone, uh, hormone replacement therapy, and they're facing these rules. There are also people who have not yet started this kind of treatment. Talk to us about the decisions they're having to make very quickly now. Well, I can tell you that immediately after this rule was announced, our phone lines, our call center, our front staff, uh, our front desk staff, our nurses, our case managers were flooded with questions and concerns, calls from existing patients, patients who had appointments scheduled but maybe had not yet completed that appointment. And we saw on social media an outcry from the community. They really needed us to step up and, and improve and expand access in this short amount of time before the rule went into place. Folks are terrified. You know, many of these patients have spent a lifetime um, overcoming barriers trying to access this health care um, in a way that helps them live healthy, fulfilling lives. And many of them are asking now, you know, why, first of all, why are they being targeted? Um, but also, how are, how are we, how, are the, how is the community, how is the state, um, how are we going to help them ensure that they still have access to those, those important and critical therapies? 
Now, we've been talking about these proposed rules by Attorney General Andrew Bailey and the requirements they put on patients who are both already on uh, gender-affirming care and those who are seeking it. But there are some big question marks uh, for some of these patients. And a lot of that really has to do with people who have already begun this treatment. Where is the confusion in this and, and what is the impact of that? Yeah, so the rule does impact folks differently. Um, if they are established patients um, already on hormone therapy, although they still have to comply with some parts of the, the rule, um, they are allowed some flexibility in when they initiate those components. As opposed to folks who have not yet initiated care, they are in a whole different bucket. We are talking about potentially up to an 18-month delay before they can access this life-saving care as they work through the, that checkbox, that list of requirements that the attorney general is now putting on them. And the reality is, is that for individual providers on the ground, folks who are providing gender-affirming care as part of their larger pra private practice, it will become impossible for them to keep up with the administrative burden and understand what will likely be an ever-changing landscape for practitioners and physicians who are providing this care. Dr. McNicholas, it seems like some physicians and, and institutions are, are walking away from gender-affirming care. I've seen um, some trans folks have shared letters with me from their physicians saying, you know, as of April 27th, we cannot guarantee that we can fulfill your treatment. You need to get a 90-day get a supply and be okay on your own and, you know, go off and figure it out. Um, wh what does that mean when some of the in these institutions are pulling back and telling their patients, you're on your own? Well, look, we have heard from patients um, just since this uh, ruling has come out that very same thing. We had people show up at our walk-in clinic um, on the 17th in this very situation. Um, you know, as an individual provider, I want to believe that physicians are mortified. They are heartbroken that they can't continue to provide this care for folks. But this is ultimately a natural consequence of politicians practicing medicine, putting into place regulations that don't make any medical sense. We're talking with Dr. Colleen McNicholas, Chief Medical Officer of Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region and Southwest Missouri, and we're talking about how medical providers are reacting to restrictions on gender-affirming care and what's being done now before the new restrictions go into effect on April 27th. Now, in response to this rule, you have opened up hundreds of appointment slots for patients in Missouri and in Illinois, the various Planned Parenthood uh, facilities there, and they're going to these walk-in clinics. What are you hearing from patients about what's brought them and what things are looking like for their futures? You know, I always talk with patients um, when I first meet with them in a new gender-affirming um, appointment, and I always ask the same questions. So what one of those being, why now? What makes now the right time for you to initiate this therapy? And there are usually some consistent themes, but I will tell you that since this announcement came out, in addition to sort of the, the traditional things we hear about their gender journey and, and now perhaps being financially ready or insured, consistently what we are hearing is that they are terrified of the political climate. They know that this might be their only chance in Missouri to get this care. And so um, so folks are feeling, you know, they're feeling really strapped. Um, they know that providers are going away. Um, they know that the attorney general and the legislator are targeting them. And so this political expediency that's been created um, is pushing folks to, to, to try and scramble and get in quicker. 
You know, in looking at Attorney General Andrew Bailey's proposed rules, I have them in front of me, the word that keeps being repeated over and over again is experimental. Is what you do with your patients experimental? No. Uh, in fact, there is, you know, decades worth of not just lived experience, but also um literature, data to suggest that this is really safe and really life-saving care. You know, our medical institutions and organizations typically tend to be fairly risk-averse, right? You know, major medical organizations don't come out with universal recommendations until there is a great and extensive, robust body of literature. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the American College of OBGYNs, the American Medical Association, the Psychologic and Psychiatric Associations, Every single one of them have coalesced around the same exact finding and recommendation, which is that folks, whether they are pediatric or adults, need access to this life-saving and very safe care. What are patients telling you about what happens if their care is, is changed in this way after the 27th? One of the most consistent concerns that I've heard over the last couple of days is the fear, absolute terror of having to be forced to detransition. You know, we are seeing folks who've been on this therapy for years, decades, um, and the thought that they would then now have this, this what has become such routine and basic um, care for their for their health and their well-being ripped away from them is is just terrifying for them. You know, the mental health consequences of losing access to this are already evident, and we haven't yet reached that point. Um, and so, you know, we're going to have to do not just a lot of work to make sure that they have access to the medication, the the actual visits, but there's going to be, and there already has been, a lot of community care. You know, there's one thing I think that I have learned about our trans community in Missouri, and it's that they are a really close-knit community, and they're going to stand up for each other and stand with each other. And so, in addition to helping folks figure out where to get that medication, we're also going to have to figure out how to care for these folks um, at a time when they are really being targeted. Dr. Colleen McNicholas is the Chief Medical Officer of Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region and Southwest Missouri. Dr. McNicholas, thank you for being here. Thank you. That was St. Louis on the Air producer, Danny Wisentowski, who spoke with Dr. Colleen McNicholas late last week. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. With audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, 
committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.